Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. When I first heard about Hazana Sharp's research of harnessing the insights of the famed 17th century Dutch rationalist philosopher Benedictus Spinoza to further an avowedly feminist agenda, I must admit that I was nonplussed. After all, while I've long been a big Spinoza fan myself, one of his decidedly less impressive characteristics has been his occasional tendency to lapse into misogynistic stereotypes. How on earth, I asked myself, could this guy be a poster boy for feminism? Well, it turns out there's a lot more to it than you might think. If you don't mind me just going back to that, Mm -hmm. because I would like to actually know something about it. You were talking about this philosophy program in the famous town of Montclair, New Jersey, or the region of New Jersey, for for little guys all the way Mm -hmm. up to to high school. Mm -hmm. And and, and you were saying that it was interesting when the, the people who were in high school were debating the people who were in college on philosophical topics, Mm -hmm. they had a keener, uh, more penetrating sense of the ethical components because Mm -hmm. they were not uh, dressing it in all this other rationalistic garb and so forth. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that struck me as actually quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what struck me was it seemed like uh, they hadn't yet unlearned how to ask a philosophical question. Like, for them, uh, you know, they were still, um, you know, in a phase of wonder, um, still, you know, they could still say, like, well, should we eat animals? Like, what is animal consciousness like? What would it feel like to be an animal? Like, is this right? Are there other ways we could live? And um, and it seemed like for the university students, they were already, uh, yes, at this more kind of calculative means and reasoning and had sort of forgotten how to step back and ask these bigger questions. Like, for them, it was just immediately a question of feasibility, like, is it realistic right. to think that people could stop eating animals, or is it uh, feasible that we could do without pharmaceutical testing? So that's, that's interesting to me, this idea of beating it out of people or teaching people not to think yeah. what they would naturally think. Yeah. Um, people have made similar comments about science. Oh, really? Children are <laughs> natural scientists. They wonder about the world yeah. and they're curious about the world. And somehow, yeah. at some point in, in, in a typical stage of education, they start looking at this as boring because it becomes very structured and mm-hmm. very orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, is there just, I know we're going to talk about lots of other things, <laughs> but just off the top of your head, is there um, something that we could be doing better on the educational uh, side of things, so as uh, so as to at least, if not stimulate that, at least allow it to continue that yeah. sort of critical thinking or curiosity yeah. or, or or wonder. Yes. If you were queen of the world, would you would you do anything uh, tangible to try to affect that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, even at the university level, I think of my own task as being uh, 
not primarily content delivery. I'm not giving them uh, things they need to know, doctrines they need to memorize and represent to me um, in sort of like adequate, acceptable form, but I want uh, to teach them uh, modes of inquiry, how to ask questions, how to read texts, and how to uh, like look for what meaning you might find in the text that is not the first, most superficial, most obvious meaning. So, um, you know, really encourage them to explore and think about whether what I think that word means might mean something else, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, really uh, how to ask questions, how to open up uh, problems. And uh, that's what I really want to see, like more than the duplication of a particular kind of concept right. or getting something right. And right. I think in general, uh, the extent to which we can structure assignments and tests in a way that where we're looking for those skills of, uh, you know, for like uh, teaching them how to um, have insights, how to have discoveries, and how to ask questions rather than how to get the right answer. Are some people more predisposed to that than others? Is there a class of people that you could point <laughs> to and say, no, I'm being quite, quite, uh, I mean, I don't mean, you know, left-handed people or something like yeah. that. But I mean, can you say, oh, these people, you know, generally people who go through this type of education system have that more intact or, or generally people who come from this part of the world or so yeah. you see people from all over in your in your line of work are you able to make any sort of generalization at all so that we can say well at least they're doing something a little better over here or over there yeah. or in this way or that yeah. way yeah i i don't think i'd want to venture a, a generalization mm -hmm. i mean i do think one of the great pleasures of uh, teaching first-year students is that they do seem more uh, wide-eyed and curious and um, and they don't often they don't yet know what philosophy is what philosophy looks like um, they don't have expectations in terms of how they should perform um, etc and so it can be just very exciting to get them at that stage where they're just they're just really wondering and uh, and often students take their first philosophy class as an elective. They don't think I'm going to become a philosopher. They take their first philosophy class um, often as a kind of like gift to themselves. They're like, I'm doing these practical classes, these classes that are going to get me my, uh, you know, job or going to secure my future. And then I get to pick one class for me. And then that's philosophy class. And then, uh, and they don't really know what to expect, but they, you know, hope that it's going to help them think about the meaning of life or what's really important and so they come in with the right attitude from your perspective yes they're, they're doing it. this is an, yes. an intellectual holiday or intellectual candy yes. as it were for them to be yes able to yes enjoy yes and what about you how did it start for you did you was it somewhat similar uh, for you or did you did you think from the age of three by golly i'm going to be a philosopher <laughs> no yeah it was very very fortuitous uh in my case um i mean i do remember uh in high school at the public library, you know, picking Nietzsche off the shelf because the titles looked outrageous. Um, you know, so what, what was, was the most outrageous title? Well, the Antichrist or something yeah. like that. I was like, oh, I've got to see, look at yeah. this, you know. <laughs> so it worked because um, he was trying to be outrageous. Yeah, so, I mean. <laughs> yeah. So, so 
I remember having that that little bit of at the public library. You yes. Did this. And, and how how old were you roughly? This is um, ten or no, no, high school. 12? So so okay. you know probably you know fifteen. I was probably wearing black and right. you know and being you know really morose and wanting right. to be different from everyone else and. Right. And so I'm like, yeah, Antichrist, that sounds rebellious. This was after the horses? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> well after the horses. Um, and, and what was the reaction from people? Did they, did they say, oh, this, you know, Hosanna's really deep and she, did you get labeled in some way? How no, it's very hard to be rebellious where I'm from. I'm, I mean, I'm from Northern California, right. um, like the, right. like, you know, how about voting Republican? Oh, that, yeah, that, that would that, that would be very rebellious. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I mean, the the main way of sort of uh, you know in my parents' generation of uh, exploring the big questions was through New Age ideology. And like my father was very interested in Starhawk, who was like a Wiccan, a Jungian Wiccan. A Jungian Wiccan. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and uh, and he was very interested in Jung and this like New Age psychology. So the Antichrist seemed a little, you know, more badass than that. Right. Um, so you're pushing the envelope. <laughs> you're pushing the Jungian wiki and envelope. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> um, but but when I went to university, uh, I uh, was just interested in absolutely everything, and uh, and I didn't um, have a clear destiny in mind, um, and I actually uh, majored in literature and religious studies. Okay. And Where did uh, you go? Did you go to Penn State, or was that for your That PhD? was for my PhD, okay, yeah. Okay, so where did you go? You must have gone somewhere closer to home. Right? Yes, I went to Occidental College in Los Angeles. Okay, yeah. Um, where Obama went briefly, which is on all their publicity material, but... Uh, but so far, you don't have presidential ambition. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, and I mostly remember Ben Affleck, who lived in my dorm. Oh, really? uh, yes, hmm. yes. Did he did he have philosophical interests as well? So far, as he... Um, he he had a lot of interest in women. I noticed, right. uh, but I didn't see him in philosophy classes. But I had this very beautiful best friend, and so I encountered him frequently because he he tried to talk to her, but she was wanted more sort of brooding, arty types, and he was a little bit. Uh, he know. could have played that role. Maybe now he, <laughs> he could play that yeah, role. Yeah, yeah. He he didn't know what to yeah. you know what level to pitch it at at that point. <laughs> So you went to Occidental College, yes, um, and and you you went there and you studied. I'm sorry, you studied religion and and culture, literature. Literature, okay. yeah, yeah. And uh, it was actually my English teacher who uh, introduced me to Spinoza. So he his name is Warren Montag. He's actually uh, um, uh, like widely known for his scholarship, especially of the uh, French philosopher Louis Althusser, but also for Spinoza. And um, so it was a complete uh, accident. I took this class on literature and philosophy. And, uh, and he was uh, completely uh, abusing his professorial uh, prerogative and just taught the whole class on Spinoza. <laughs> well, that's, um, we, we, we look at that as stimulation. Yeah. <laughs> and how many people were in this class? I think probably 15 or something. It was a small class. And so uh, you seem to have swallowed the, the Spinoza bait. Did other people as well? Was everybody, were all 15 no, of you no. disciples? So, no. Um, so uh, I was really interested in mostly feminism and Marxism. And, uh, and Warren Montag has uh, 
background in Marxism, and he works in French Marxism. And so he really introduced Spinoza as a source of inspiration for um, French Marxism, so for Althusser, Machret, Balibar, and Deleuze. Um, and uh, so for me, that was a huge hook. Like, so he uh, presented Spinoza as someone to whom they were turning to ask the question of why people fight for their servitude as if it were salvation. And so I think my main interest, uh, like I think in a way, now that I look back on it, it's not really very different from my uh, New Age origins, but was in this, the question of emancipation and sort of like radical self-transformation. And, uh, and so that like really hooked me. I was like, somehow Spinoza is going to be the key to answering this question, like how is it that uh, people become invested in their own servitude and don't actually do what it is that will bring about their salvation or their liberation. And uh, so I was uh, completely intoxicated in the class. Uh, most of my peers were excited about French philosophy in general. It was the 90s, excited about uh, Derrida, excited about uh, literary theory, literary criticism, etc. But I, I caught the Spinoza bug. But this was in first year, or was no, it? In, this must have been higher. It was higher. I, it was, it was actually um, my junior year, okay, and probably even the second semester. So I was almost finished with my major in religious studies, um, where I did take uh, several philosophy classes as part of religious studies because you could do this concentration in philosophy of religion. Um, so I had some philosophy background, but, uh, but. So yeah, I was uh, in my uh, the, towards the end of my junior year, and I was like, I was just really enchanted with this professor, and I squeezed in in my last three semesters a literature degree. So I took all the, um, I, I had you know probably like four literature classes okay. that term for the rest. Because you had mentioned that you were interested in feminism and Marxism yes. before, and did, yes. you, did you go to? Uh, college with you know after so I've I had this image of you wearing black and being in the library <laughs> at the age of fifteen yeah um, getting the most provocative Nietzschean titles you can yeah and and now you're in your in in, in your junior year and third year mm -hmm. and you're being stimulated by Spinoza as a way of uh, self enfranchisement and and so forth yeah. uh, but there's there's a fair gap there. Yes. So you mentioned you mentioned uh, Marxism and feminism. And yes. when, when did that come into your ambit, as it were? When did you start getting your curiosity peaked with all of that? Yes. Well, I took my very first year. I took a, um, a like just a first year student class um, in kind of like foundations of Western culture. Um, and for the final project, you could choose um, to focus on the Bible. U.S. Constitution or Marx, like these were <laughs> somehow like three made the three canons, the three pillars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so I chose Marx. And was I've... there anyone who tried to do all three? By the way, <laughs> <laughs> no, sa sadly. <laughs> but uh, if someone stayed in some kind of a, we didn't have a great books program, but we had like this sort of one year. Um, you had a great pillars program. Great pillars program, and uh, so and you chose Marx. Yeah, so I chose I chose Marx, and I don't even I don't know why. But I mean, maybe also just it just seemed like the more provocative, the more radical of the three, and um, 
And I read um, Herbert Marcuse mm. and was uh, like very, very excited <laughs> by his essay on liberation and uh, uh, carried it around with me for a while and wrote, like brought it to my parents, tried to get them to read it. And um, so I was very excited by that. Um, but basically, I was just uh, excited by anything that seemed like a radical and provocative idea. So also in feminist theory, like the um, more radical feminism was immediately exciting to me. Um, and so, so what is more radical feminism? Explain to me, because I don't know very much <laughs> about this. So I would like to know, what do you mean when you say radical feminism as opposed to non-radical feminism? Yeah. Or mainstream feminism or whatever. Yes. Whatever. Well, so... Um, like even though temperamentally I'm like very congenial, I'm not. I don't. I'm not confrontational. I don't like antagonism. I don't like mm. arguments. Not but, so far. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and you know, and one reason Marcuse was exciting is like this is this you know eros and civilization. It's about this uh, like liberation through like love and collective joy, etc. I was very very attracted to that. Um, but I still uh, with you know feminist theory there would. Uh, the texts that I found most provocative were those that were, um, you know, arguing in the the most, uh, you know, what seemed to be the most extreme terms at the time, um, which, you know, they'd argue for, like, uh, a total, uh, you know, autonomous community of where women were entirely autonomous from men and that they had to sort of, like, recreate a world independent of men that they couldn't discover what their own ideas were, their own desires, or their own passions, or how they would make their own world um, until they had some kind of free space. And you know, so the sense of being really oppressed. Yes. Is that, is that or, or or is that just writ large? Is that a criterion for for being a feminist? Or or is or so I'm I'm trying to understand yeah. <laughs> the difference between a, somebody saying I'm a moderate feminist. I mean, to me, it yeah. means. Equal rights, equal opportunity, equal respect—all of that, yes. all of that—and so I, in, by that definition, I would consider myself a feminist. I would consider any yes. right-thinking person a feminist, yes. just like somebody who's not doesn't believe in uh, in the idea that people are inferior because of the color of their skin or their gender yes. or any of that sort of thing. Yes. But my understanding is that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, here. that would be like liberal feminism, and of course, there's a big spectrum of feminism. But uh, I was attracted to this. I mean, I. I think what was attractive to me in, in radical feminism was this, the kind of uh, envisioning of uh, radical creativity that, that would be made possible by, like, you know, by really, in, you know, building a new world. Um, Without so, men. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, like, it's, it's a transitional period, you sure. know. <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't like most men, personally, so I mean. But... Uh, um, I mean, some ways it was envisioned, you know, I imagined it as sort of like Wonder Woman Island, like, you know, we'll have this, and I think that like every teenager talks about this, right? Like, if I could have my own island, who would I allow on the island? What would the rules be? Like, uh, you know, what kinds of practices would we totally outlaw, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so procreation would happen through artificial insemination? Is this, is, yes. You've, you've taken care of that? Yes. Okay. That, that's what, what, what they uh, were defending at the time. It was mostly in like 60s and 70s, there was a kind of utopian right. strand of radical feminism of like total, total autonomy. And, um, and I think what was exciting to me was this idea that um, you're sort of 
ideas and your desires and just your habits, um, if they're like formed in a context of domination, you don't even know what they would be without that context. So how could you um, create a space in which you would discover the authentic or, you know, or discover some, some alternative um, right. desires and beliefs and passions? And, right. um, so to some extent, you don't even know who you are. Yes. You, you haven't actually been able to, to flower or, or to flourish yes. or, or to allow yourself to express yourself in yes. a deep way. Yes. And it's, uh, and, you know, and that's exactly what uh, John Stuart Mill actually argues in the subjection of women. So it is uh, like, you know, it is a liberal insight too. It's, <laughs> it's like a, a fundamental insight in, in early feminism is that the conditions of oppression or domination like are such that uh, uh, women are um, invisible or unintelligible in the current context and um, because they're all, all like represented in literature and law and um, and in society uh, through the eyes of men and not through themselves so um, like are they are they intelligible except as a sort of projection of um, you know uh, masculine fantasy <laughs> or uh, right. or this this history of domination and and John Stuart Mill I actually quite quite love the essay on the subjection of women and says like he gives this metaphor where you know if you're not on an equal plane if you're looking down on women your perception is skewed you you're not seeing them for what they are and so you need this this situation of equality and I think the difference for the radical fe feminists was well that's given this long history given the severity of oppression like that's not going to be enough you can't just bring women up to the level of men you need to give women like this like real freedom and real autonomy to to create another world otherwise there's just there's always going to be this uh, temptation to just uh, model yourself on the ideals right. right so listening to you it seems to me that um, there may be two things going on but there are probably a lot more but, <laughs> but two things going on at least my naive response so one is if you have a class of individuals who are being subjugated and and who aren't being a, who are being regarded a priori as inferior and so forth you have obviously societal problems you have even pragmatic societal problems you're not taking advantage of, mm -hmm. of that huge proportion of your society, and that is changing and deeply affecting the structure of society and those individuals and their mentalities who are subjugating those people. But then you also have, of course, the people themselves who are yes. being subjugated. And yes. so there's something even more insidious insofar as they are, to some extent, believing this or being indoctrinated or imbued yes. in such a society that they don't even recognize that they are not being allowed to be as creative and fully enfranchised and so forth. Is that a, yes. fair, is that a fair way of looking at yes, it? Yes, absolutely. And, and, uh, that, and it's not just at the level of uh, belief and self-perception, but even at the level of like bodily habit uh, that they, uh, you know, uh, fe feminist phenomenologists have made a big deal out of how um, like women, and of course it's like particularly uh, white middle and upper class women are taught to like make themselves as small as possible and, mm. um, and to comport themselves um, in a way that doesn't call too much attention to themselves, not too much uh, gesturing or flinging, right. flinging of themselves about, not talking too loud, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that this, uh, 
becomes is like internalized and made so automatic, so second nature that uh, you know you don't even know what it, it feels like to feel more uninhibited, to feel like you could take up more space, etc. So the radical approach is things have reached a stage uh, of, of oppression that's so deep and so instantiated in society, you just have to blow it up basically yes. and start again. Is that yes, it? yes. So, uh, and you know, and there's lots of problems with. Uh, Radical feminism, etc. But I was as a. Uh, We're going back in time. To yes, what yes, I yes. Um, but yeah, I was very, I was very excited by these, um, yes, by by uh, both of these traditions of um, like social movements and intellectual history, where they're trying to think about in like some way of being that has not yet ever taken place, um, in some form of uh, profound. A transformation, a sort of profound exercise in imagination and uh, rebuilding of of society from the ground up. And so there was this there was this obvious overlap between when you were taking this third pillar of Marxism, yeah. as it were, um, to, uh, with the um, the standard, presumably Marxist theory of the oppression of the working classes and mm -hmm. this idea of rebuilding a society and yes. dynamiting it and starting it again and having a revolution. And so there there there's a very strong structural argument. So yes. oppression was a big part of things for you, yes. fairness, justice, yes. how we can actually achieve that in the real world, as it were, rather than just writing books about it, exactly. how we can move forward. Exactly. So now we're ready to go back mm -hmm. um, to where you had gone right before, which was the influence in your junior year of, of uh, this individual whose name starts with an M, and I'm, I've already forgotten. Montag. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember to start with an M. So Monday. Something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and right, of course. So that's uh, so obviously of German descent yeah. or Germanic yeah. descent. Um, born on a Monday, presumably. You see how see how we can edit all this stuff. Right? <laughs> you see how all the extraneous stuff can just be cut right out. Very easy. Um, so let's let's start from there. What was it specifically about what he said about? Spinoza, now that we have a clear understanding of where your intellectual predilections were and, and your, your orientation and your, your passions, mm -hmm. uh, what did he say uh, that, that so piqued your, your interest? And what is it about Spinoza that fits this so well? Yeah. So I think, uh, I think it was fortuitous that it was sort of toward the end of my uh, time in college because at the beginning, I think I felt uh, really just uh, like full of possibility and that uh, like and excited by all of these ideas of, of radical transformation. But uh, I eventually like and uh, came to feel kind of depressed and distraught that uh, these uh, ideas and insights about the nature of oppression were uh, were not ones that could easily change how one felt <laughs> or actually lived. So um, you know, uh, so that you have these uh, astute analyses of the nature of patriarchy, for example, um, but still, you know, feel like every other young woman in college. Of course, not every other, but uh, and still. Be very concerned about what people think of you. Be concerned about your appearance, um, and uh, 
and like, you know, immediately, I immediately wanted to have these ideas have a transformative effect on my relationships with other people, um, my romantic relationships, my relationships with my friends, whatever, but it was incredibly difficult. Um, you wanted to and, change the world. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, but it was even like difficult at the most basic level to even uh, uh, adopt a like new, uh, yeah, like a new perspective on myself to not judge myself against the standards of patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was, you know, after the initial intoxication, arriving at the idea that, oh, actually this is quite hard work. And then, and like being involved in the feminist consciousness coalition was, was really hard. We just, we fought all the time. Um, we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't. But you fought amongst yourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We couldn't agree on, on what needed to be done and, and everything that we did would produce some kind of controversy on campus. And, um, and I was. That's the sign of a vibrant intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very, very stressful. And, uh, and it was also my, in the liberal arts college, um, it was very uh, racially diverse um, for a private liberal arts college. And, um, and I was also, I was very excited about um, uh, different political actions that were being done also by like students of color. Um, but uh, those were also just all like frequently very fraught. Um, I think it was in my last year that where the Rodney King beatings happened um, in, uh, in Los Angeles and um, which is where I was. And, uh, and there were all of these speak outs on campus and, uh, and Sorry, speak outs? Yeah, speak outs. <laughs> so oh. where there'd just be a microphone put in the, in the middle of the, the main area where people hung mm -hmm. out and, um, and people would come and speak out. just speak out, say, say how they felt. And there was a lot of conflict. There was a lot of uh, like protest, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, it was sort of, the, the 90s were also kind of famous for it was the beginning of a big wave of political correctness. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, uh, there were lots of debates about like what to name the, I think it was called the Gay Student Alliance when it, when I arrived, but then, you know, there was lots of debate. They were like, well, why, you know, where are the lesbians, the lesbians, um, but, and, and every, every single name of every student club was uh, under discussion, and, um, and it was so hard. I mean, all, all of it was just like really, really hard work, and, um, and I think like everyone who's been involved in any kind of social activism knows that's just the way that it is, but to, to me that was very shocking because <laughs> I was very idealistic, and I just right. thought, oh, we should just get together and do these projects, and um, it shouldn't be that hard to agree on these things, and um, and but also at the personal level, it shouldn't be that hard to, uh, you know, change how I feel, change how I live, change uh, how I relate to people. Um, and then, uh, but so Warren Montag uh, sort of like introduced uh, Spinoza through these uh, Marxist thinkers in France who were uh, specifically excited about Spinoza after May of 68. Um, so after, at, at the time in France, the students were really, really expecting there to be uh, uh, a big revolution, a major social transformation. Um, uh, and 
that the movement then seemed to collapse after 68, and then the Marxist philosophers had somehow decided that the Hegelian optimism in Marx was not well-founded, and that Spinoza would help them think better about um, why these big efforts of transformation um, were failing, mm-hmm. why, why it was so hard, and why people seemed to be committed uh, to live in a way that was to their disadvantage, um, and, and not committed to emancipation, not committed uh, to freedom. And so, so, so the philosophical focus for justifying the lack of social progress, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, after May 68 in France, shifted from Hegel to Spinoza. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and that legacy then was passed on to people like Horne Montag and so forth yes. to, to be able to in, imbue that in you. And when you mm-hmm. read this, and when you were presented with these arguments, um, what was what was your reaction? Was this, yeah, that's it, that's that's the answer, this guy has it right? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. interesting for me as somebody who didn't have any of these experiences, when I first hear Spinoza being associated with feminism, I think, well, hang on. Yeah. Um, there's some <laughs> words in the, you know, at the end of the political treaties, yes. he says things like, well, women are obviously inferior, yes. and that kind of stuff. So I would say this is, no, 17th century, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and one can't hold people accountable, or at least maybe one can't hold people accountable for all uh, social mores at the, at the time and so forth. Yeah. But that's not somebody I would directly associate with feminism. So yes. uh, I can imagine somebody else who's coming to this from a non-specialist background would say, that's a bit odd. So yes. does somebody point that out and say, okay, we get this idea of the emancipation thing uh, being curious and our Hegelian arguments haven't really worked, so let's look at the Spinoza guy. But once you start linking Spinoza with feminism, don't people start putting up their hands and say, well, wait a minute, what did he, when he actually wrote yeah. this over here, that doesn't seem very feminist friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it took me a long time to um, actually, actually like settle on uh, Spinoza as my, my area of research, but but that really planted the seed where, um, and and at that point it was just, a seed of profound curiosity, because of course, uh, you know, I think we read the theological political treatise first, and um, and but but we didn't. We read the ethics also, and it's uh, incredibly <laughs> obs- obscure, and it wasn't. And uh, uh, and with the TTP, at least, like you you do see, there is this. Uh, you know, Spinoza does have like some quite impassioned speeches about the abuses of, of clerics and, and theologians and is uh, and the the oppressive character of religion in, in, in his time and um, and a vision for a kind of on some accounts you might say a, a transformative appropriation of religion or um, a kind of like um, a new kind of democratic order, um, but. It's still pretty remote from the immediate concerns uh, that, that that I was living. Sure. Um, but at least it's not written in this math, dry mathematical, you know, yes. proof lemma type of style. I mean, that's yes. that's extremely inaccessible to, yes. to most people. Yes, uh, virtually everybody, at least at first reading. I mean, it's yeah. something that requires an awful lot of work if yes. you're going to be interested in doing that. Yes, the idea, by the way, just parenthetically. That this, that this book was so incredibly controversial, and of course it was published posthumously, but mm-hmm. the, the ethics, I'm talking about it, obviously, yes. not, not the other one. 
uh, not the Tractatus, but that it it was this looked upon by some people as this powder keg is is amusing to me because yeah. I mean I I can't imagine too many people who would read through it yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that that's a sign of change yes. of the times. Anyway, yes. that's just a parent parenthetical remark. Yeah. But um Yeah, but you asked about feminism. Right, so I did. Yeah. Um, See, you should be doing it. You should be <laughs> keeping on track. That's exactly what should be done. Yeah. Um, but I did, I discovered, um, so, you know, I was intrigued and, uh, and I wanted to learn more about Spinoza. And I just sort of had the, you know, trust that, well, there is something there. I don't see it yet. But, you know, if I keep working at it, I'm going to find it. And, and the idea that there could somehow be this key or the secret, um, um, in these texts uh, to really understanding why uh, people are committed to their own servitude. Like I'm, you know, I was just wanted to, to find that out. Um, and, uh, and for me on a personal level, it connected more to um, the resistance of, of my own life to taking on the insights of, of feminist theory. And so it's like, um, but, uh, but I did uh, quickly, uh, discover as a graduate student that um, there were, uh, like, there's a small group of feminist theorists, for some reason, all out of Australia, who also had some influence from French Marxism, but mostly from uh, read, interpreted Spinoza through uh, analytic philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, but they were uh, feminist theorists interested in Spinoza. And so, you know, I wasn't alone, and I had their guidance. Um, for trying to trying to to draw the connection um, and uh, like see why uh, why despite what it is that he <laughs> says about women um, there could still be some resources for thinking through the problems and questions that are central to feminist theory um, and I think I ha I have uh, a sense of of what it is now that is it in common, but uh, I've been, uh, you know, reading Spinoza since the mid '90s, and it's probably taken me till now to <laughs> feel clear about uh, the affinities and the resources um, that Spinoza provides for for feminist theory. Great. So let's get to those ideas, and let's yeah. start off um, with. Uh, at the basics, as it were. So when most people hear about Spinoza as a philosopher, um, the one thing that I'm thinking that almost everyone can agree on is that his sense of naturalism. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they interpret that differently or regard it mm -hmm. differently, and one can build in, a, mm -hmm. uh, in different directions. But it seems to me that's a logical starting point, as it was in your book yeah. um, on renaturalization, to start there and then start thinking about um, what can be done with that and how yeah. one can build on that and interpret it and go off in different directions. So maybe you can start off by talking about what that actually is yeah. and then how you build on it from there, if, if you'd be so kind. Yes, sure. Um, yeah, um, I think my book starts with uh, sort of observing the kind of methodological disjunct, actually, between uh, feminist and Marxist social criticism and Spinoza. So um, 
in the sort of tradition that first got me excited and engaged with theory and philosophy um, in uh, Marxist social criticism and uh, feminist theory, uh, the main method is to identify phenomena that appear natural and expose how it is that they are actually a product of human institutions and practices. So it may appear natural that uh, women are submissive, women are more caring, women are more nurturing, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, we can, well, A, provide a whole bunch of counterexamples <laughs> to that uh, putatively natural fact, um, and we can show all of the um, rigorous training that uh, has to be imposed upon women in order to produce that kind of character. The social um, conditioning and so forth. Exactly. And Ex one can presumably say the same thing about colonialism, or one, 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 exactly. can, one can look at that, that any sort of power dynamic or power imbalance uh, might appeal to a pseudo-naturalistic framework in which that they justify that, but in reality it's, it's just a way of justifying the power imbalance. Is that yes. a fair way to Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so you see, like, you know, lots of um, the, uh, the kind of, like, intellectual impulse in social movements is to say, like, like look, this, uh, this inequality between human beings is not a natural inequality. It's produced. It's produced by human, uh, human institutions, and there are powerful interests invested in preserving this inequality, and... Um, that uh, like human nature is sufficiently plastic and diverse that this is not at all necessary. It could be different. And if we organize society differently, uh, we, uh, you know, we would see a blossoming of human capacities and we, would see, we wouldn't see the, this kind of rigid uh, differences in sort of uh, you know, outcomes for, for uh, different groups in terms of like socioeconomic outcomes, like their life expectancy, et cetera, et cetera. We wouldn't see this if we lived differently. Um, and then, uh, but for Spinoza, his kind of, there is an element of that in uh, Spinoza's methodology, in particular um, with his Bible criticism, for which is, which is um, one of the things for which he's most famous, is to treat the Bible not as the word of God, but as a human product, um, as an artifact of, um, uh, of like particular humans in time and place, in a particular time and place, and to consider its, um, you know, the the uh, you know who the authors were, what kinds of idioms that they, they sure. use in their communities. And the etymological confusion, in fact, which is cascaded down, which is one of the reasons he was so keen to, in fact, write a Hebrew grammar and, and yes. talk about the actual language, that you have to understand that because people are misinterpreting the words that were actually being used. So this exactly. Was, um, yes. But, so so um, maybe I can just uh, cut you off or, or maybe start again, mm -hmm. because I want to talk a little bit about this idea of, again, if, if I don't know anything, if I've never read any Spinoza, if I've never heard of the guy yeah. Spinoza before, okay, who is this guy? Um, we've talked about, and obviously we're going to get back to that, so the difference in feminism, you've made me understand the difference mm -hmm. between maybe accommodating um, or changing society subtly as opposed to dynamiting society mm -hmm. and re restructuring. 
in all sorts of ways, but recognizing the power imbalances, recognizing the oppression, thinking yeah. about ways of enfranchising people, both physically and mentally and all the yes. rest of that. Um, but let's, let's start with Spinoza. So yeah. here's this guy. He's living yeah. in the 17th century in Holland. Yeah. And there's this word naturalism, which, it, mm -hmm. which is thrown around. And it seems to me, so correct me if, if, uh, if I'm wrong, but, but the one thing that most people will agree on is that Spinoza makes this equivalence between God and nature to the extent mm -hmm. that he doesn't look at God in the way that most of his uh, colleagues and compatriots mm -hmm. uh, did, that there was this big guy with the white flowing beard, there yeah. was this anthropomorphic entity that was looking after us and that yeah. we would have to, we would be praying to and so forth. He made an equivalence between God and nature. And by yes. nature, he meant everything. Yes. Right? He meant physical stuff and yes. mental stuff and just everything we see around us, that it was all part. The, it wasn't like there was God and God's divine plan. It was one big thing yes. all together. And yes. that's what we mean by naturalism. Is that a fair summation? Yeah. I mean, what? Uh, so um, for sure, there is this elimination of uh, anything supernatural. So I think you explained that well. So uh, one implication of naturalism is uh, is this where uh, like one way it's been put is that God disappears into nature. There is no longer this remote God um, who is controlling things from a distance, or even this God that can be separated um, any way other than heuristically from reality as we know it. So it's this elimination of supernaturalism. It's this elimination of um, a kind of uh, uh, multifaceted or dual reality where you have this purely ideal reality of God and this more uh, and perfect reality of God and this imperfect um, material messy reality of the world. You have uh, you completely get rid of that and you have uh, just one reality. Um, and then uh, there's also the idea that um, there's uh, one and the same set of rules that applies to all of that reality. Um, and I think uh, that's the part that I saw as being somewhat in tension with these, these other traditions. So one of the main things that Spinoza is criticizing is like, on the one hand, the anthropomorphic remote uh, God that is fully identified with spirit. Um, and then, but, uh, but he's especially, I think, attacking the correlate of that, which is the idea of humanity as being um, in some way like God or the unique um, being. A domain on, within itself. So. Yes, yes. And the, 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 um, the only creature on earth who has some, um, like, uh, like, you know, divine quality. I mean, um, of course, like, the, I mean, it's a little bit messy when you think about the history of ideas. There is this sort of great chain of being where you have more or less divinity in beings from the highest to the lowest. Um, so he's also like resisting that. Um, but I think uh, he sees it as very uh, socially destructive, especially to see human beings, in particular, uh, human minds as being subject to a different kind of logic, a different kind of rules um, than the rest of nature. Um, so like in the Cartesian picture, 
you have um, all of extended matter, which operates according to the rules of uh, uh, mechanism of uh, cause and efficient cause and effect. Um, but then mind um, is uh, an entirely different. He, like he says, it has nothing in common with the realm of matter. And that's why um, we have this psychological experience of being uh, totally unconstrained. We feel our will to be free. Um, and, uh, and that is a testament. We can grasp clearly and distinctly that uh, human mentality or mind is totally unlike anything else in nature. And so I think Spinoza's naturalism is uh, aiming to completely uh, eliminate that picture where human mentality, spirituality, is totally different in kind and has this kind of uh, absolute freedom, um, this kind of infinity, this like kernel of infinity right. um, that is uh, that makes it unique, makes it uniquely responsible, uniquely free, and uniquely uh, worthy of salvation. So the, the, you said a lot of things, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of things and a lot of different things. So I want to come back to the mind-body stuff. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to free will. Uh, but for the moment, I'd like to stay a little bit more on the political side of things. Yeah. So let me give you my sense of what I found was really intriguing about, about your work, and you can tell me if, if I got it all wrong or, <laughs> or, or, or what have you. So we start from this naturalist perspective. And this natural perspective, this naturalist perspective, um, as you so eloquently said, leads, I think, to a different appreciation of what it means to be an individual, an individual yes. class or an individual. Because yes. we can no longer say, well, we, we are these creatures, uh, be a, a, especially designated by God or otherwise, who are somehow removed or independent from or disassociated with the rest of nature. No, yep. that's not the way to look at it from Spinoza's perspective. To use, I guess, a more popular expression these days, we're all connected. Right? Yes. There's this sense that, of, of interconnectivity both within our thoughts and within the matter, yeah. and that it's very, very difficult to actually make a clear delineation. And I think somewhere in your book, you also have this uh, very good analogy of individuals are also um, associated with or can be defined through the microbes that are part of them. And, and it's very, very difficult to actually delineate where one yeah. person starts, one person doesn't, a species, and so forth. Yes. Um, and, and so on the one hand, uh, getting back to what you said earlier, you as the ardent um, uh, individual on the side of justice and righteousness <laughs> and free thinking want to live in a world where the oppressed peoples of the world are emancipated. And so you look around you and you look at various different intellectual constructs that have been examining yeah. these various issues and you say, okay, there are people that think we should dynamite the society, there are people who think we should recognize this emancipation structure, the power structure, yeah. and so forth. But this very power structure is based upon these people are abusing those people. Yeah. The sense of this class is abusing those that class. Yeah. Um, and many of the people, and I think you mentioned... Uh, so again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you mentioned Judith Butler as one of them, yeah. believes in this notion of 
denaturalization, that the people who were previously advocating a natural order to things yeah. were only doing it for political reasons, were only doing it to preserve the power structure, yeah. and thus they believed that the way forwards, be it militantly or otherwise, was to, was to recognize that and this notion of denaturalizing. Mm -hmm. And so, no, 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 it's not that way. There is no established order that uh, really what's happening is people are using those arguments as a way of buttressing their clinging to power or what have yeah. you, right? And then you say, okay, so that's the situation in which we find ourselves. And then here's this Spinoza guy that actually says, no, 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 there is this natural naturalism. And what you're saying is there is this naturalism, but it's a different sort of naturalism. Yes. It's completely yes. different. It doesn't, it doesn't fit into that. And so you are advocating, it seems to me, a, a third way between the standard, yeah, well, that's just the mm -hmm. way it is. You know, white people are better than black people yeah. and get used to it because it's natural. Yeah. Uh, and, and the people that say, no, 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 we just have to blow up that and eliminate naturalism, you have this sense of, well, let's take, take guidance from Spinoza, who points to a form of naturalism which is very different than previous yes. other naturalisms. And so yes. that, that seems to be the, the, the political aspect of it. Yes. Is, that, is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, yeah, that's well put. Like, I think uh, for the denaturalists, um, nature symbolizes what can't be changed. Um, what's fixed, what's rigid, what is not subject to human intervention. And, uh, and for Spinoza, like, nature is infinitely malleable. It's, uh, um, it, like, insofar as there is any change, insofar as there's any dynamism, uh, it's all natural. Um, so its culture is not the um, dynamic, creative power, and nature is this inert um, mechanical reality that is changed by this other, uh, you know, superior power. But in fact, there's, yeah, there's no distinction between nature and culture. And, um, and uh, so, I mean, the good news is that, uh, you know, uh, the uh, radical Spinozists love to cite uh, uh, 3P2S from the ethics where Spinoza says, nobody knows what a body can do. Um, and there, you know, he means like not just a human body, but a, like a, but a, a political body, the body of, of all of nature. We, we do not know um, what uh, combinations of uh, natural beings are possible. We don't know what affects or passions we're capable of, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, like, and that um, it's also sort of axiomatic for him that if uh, nature, like God, is uh, infinite and omnipotent, uh, it's infinitely diverse, infinitely variable. And so there's not some kind of uh, you know, limit to it, but it's filled with, with uh, you know, anyway. It's <laughs> it, is a, it is a dynamic reality. So, um, so nature isn't opposed to change, um, and, uh, but what the insistence that uh, all is natural does, I think, is uh, to force you to look at what are the um, causal connections, what is the system of relationships that uh, holds any particular arrangement of uh, finite beings into place. Um, so if, uh, if the answer is not because some human beings wanted this to be the case um, because it was in their particular interest, uh, but 
that it's that uh, the constellation of relationships um, allowed for this to be possible, then you can uh, you know, try to see what is the whole system of institutions, what is the whole system of beliefs, um, what is the whole uh, system of uh, you know, practices and desires that, that, that makes this, this true. And uh, to get back to your question, the political question, like uh, what does this mean for um, certain groups oppressing other groups, um, I think what Spinozism, Marxism, and uh, like much of feminism have in common actually is a, a disinterest in blame, um, is that, that, that they don't, the analysis is such that you don't generally um, assume that the dominators even intend to dominate. Uh, they don't think, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, Mr. Burns on The Simpsons. He's not like, <laughs> you know, uh, like almost no one, um, you know, except in cartoons and movies uh, and comic books, uh, thinks of themselves as evil or bad. Um, everyone thinks they're doing something that is either good or necessary for them to survive. Um, and, uh, and so there isn't this assumption that it's malice on the part of the dominant classes, but that uh, there's a structure in place where, you know, it's really moral luck uh, which side you end up on, um, but that the institutions and the history um, is uh, um, constituted such that it's, they're so powerful that no matter what you want to do, it's very difficult to act otherwise. So, you know, there's, there's uh, billions of stories of uh, well-intentioned, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who, um, you know, want to pay their employees well or who, like, want to produce a product that is um, going to, you know, be beneficial, ecologically sustainable, etc. But the laws of the market are such that if they do that, they just will die. Like, they'll just <laughs> go out of business. Right, they right. can't survive that way. So it's not that, that everyone who's in power uh, means to be bad, but that the forces are such that if the system is to remain as it is, that's, there's no other way for them to function. But the interesting thing is, to me is that uh, this has a lot of optimism, because uh, unlike the example you just gave, where the assumption is, well, we know that if this were to happen, then it would fail, and just the systems are, the, the laws of the systems are ironclad and so forth. The, the point on a political level, as I understand it, is, well, we don't actually know. We don't yes. actually know what's going to happen. We don't know what the net results are going to be. It's yeah. not as if the game is already jigged in advance, and, and, um, and then we can look at it in a very facile way of saying it's these guys bad or however we want to ascribe right. you know, moral aspects to them against those guys and they're oppressing these people. Mm -hmm. That if, given the fact that there is this widespread connectiveness, given the fact that it all has to do with, uh, with these very, very integrated and yet at some level opaque laws, as you said, no one yes. knows what a body can do. No one yes. knows what will actually happen. Presumably God, if God is defined that way, knows. But no, no, none of us, we can't really right. understand all of that. That gives us a sense of hope of going forwards. And you give a very, yeah. very tangible example when you talk uh, about a rally. And you say, okay, imagine that there's this rally 
um, in uh, Washington or whatever, since we actually we're not there, we're in Canada <laughs> now, but whatever, <laughs> in Ottawa, there's a rally. Um, and one way, it, so a, a group of people uh, have this large demonstration, and objectively what seems to happen is there's not a lot of media coverage to the, to the rally, and the laws aren't changed in accordance with what the people who are participating in the rally might, might want to have happen. And so one way to look at it through a strict power structural perspective is to say, well, this was a failure. It was yeah. a failure because the laws didn't change. It was a failure because there wasn't enough objective social consciousness raised by a number right. of copies of the New York Times or whatever it is right. that had this in them. Um, and so therefore, it failed. But another way to look at it, incorporating this more uh, holistic, for lack of a better word, spin perspective is, well, who knows? Because these people yeah. got together, they participated. Who knows what events may wind up happening three years down yes. the road, five years down the road, as part of the laws of nature of yes. all of, of, of that event. Yes. Who knows what might actually happen? And so that does, it seems to me, give much more of an optimistic way of, of interpreting these things. And also, not just interpreting events, but in moving forward to the future. Yes. Yeah, I think, I hope, I hope it has some, some optimism to it. Like, I fear that, uh, you know, Spinoza on some level uh, wasn't that optimistic. Like, things just have a tendency to, to fall back in, into place. Um, and that, uh, but that if there's going to be a transformation, um, you know, a, you need a significant amount of support because, like, one one person alone um, can't change the way that they think, or they can't sustain these ideas that don't have um, sort of support and encouragement um, from uh, what I call like ambient ideas. They don't have a lot of ambient uh, support, so they'll like easily be extinguished. Um, so uh, you know, so so more uh, thinking powers together, uh, changing uh, uh, changing how they think. Is going to be necessary in order for it to be to be sustainable, um, but uh, yeah, with the idea of of the rally that there can be um, sort of micro level transformations um, in terms of the people present, in terms of uh, yeah. their own sense of uh, what it is that they can accomplish, and then that, we can't predict the effects. Of no, that. no, and we can't predict the the, the effects of it, and uh, and. So, you know, Montreal is a place where there's mass demonstrations on a very regular basis. You know, we have uh, like 300,000 people in the streets to protest, uh, you know, small tuition hikes and stuff. And so there's, uh, and it can be, it's a, it's a very exhilarating experience to just uh, be on the street with a lot of people who are coming around a common issue when it frequently seems so difficult to even get two people to agree with you about anything. Um, but you're like, oh, people really will uh, mobilize, even though there's like, you know, some risk of being arrested, and there's some risk of inconvenience, and there's certainly you have to take off work, um, yeah. et cetera. Um, it so, not be an inconvenience. Yeah. <laughs> Especially. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, you have to disrupt uh, the normal flow of things uh, to some extent to do this, and, uh, and that that, uh, you know, aspect of uh, possibility for, for, for like personal and collective transformation is still, I think, really uh, powerful and meaningful, even if uh, you, know, you don't effectively uh, prevent tuition from being raised, um, or if, in the case of Montreal, you get the, um, 
you know, politicians kicked out of office and the new party that comes in is, you know, just as bad. Or worse. <laughs> yeah, or worse. Um, right. Worse for education. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that was a failure. Yes. Uh, when, when you look at it. So there, there are two, politically, it seems to me that there are two things that at least come to my mind. One is this sense of optimism, by looking at mm -hmm. it this way that we've talked about. And the other, which we've also alluded to, is this, this ability uh, or encouragement, at any rate, to transcend what I would call identity politics. Mm -hmm. This notion of just going beyond, well, I'm in this class, and we're, yes. you know, we, the people, we, the left-handed people, are oppressed by the right-handed people, or what have you. It's this, this mm -hmm. awareness that, in fact, not only is it not appropriate to, to look at uh, the history and the present that way, in terms of the dynamics of what's being played out, it's inappropriate to put yourself explicitly in that identity, because that implies um, some sort of, if you will, metaphysical distinction, which isn't necessarily valid, that we can't all be slotted into that particular area. And then you go on to talk about, again, the, 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 the optimistic repercussions of looking at the world in a broader way than this identity politics, maybe politics isn't the right word, in this identity-oriented yeah. way. And one of the phrases that you use is um, philanthropic postmodernism, which is... Posthumanism. Sorry, posthumanism. Yeah. Right, posthumanism. Um, which, so let me just say that again because it'll come out sounding funny in front of, in front of the cameras. So when you use philanthropic posthumanism, you're looking at humanism, as I understand it, so help me here. Yeah. You're looking at humanism as a uh, as, an, as a notion of associating with these identities, it seems to me. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong there. So tell me, tell me what you mean by, by philanthropic posthumanism. Yeah, so I'll say a couple of things. So, so first, um, I'm not totally, a, I'm not against identity politics. I think just, just um, I think, for example, like we do need to have uh, rallies to try to change laws. We do need to have a sort of state-directed um, politics at times, and we do, um, in order to do so, we frequently have to say, like, look, we um, need a law that's going to end uh, discrimination against uh, black people or that's going to change the relationship of Aboriginal people to the state. Um, that's going to end, uh, and we do need laws that are going to address women as a group. I think that it's totally necessary, um, but I do think it always involves uh, risks and trade-offs, um, and that uh, there should also, um, you know, be room for this more kind of expansive politics um, at the like micro and personal level, where we would hope to live, um, you know, in excess of that identity or not, especially, um, uh, you know, tied to that identity. And I think. You know, with with any of these social movements, part of the goal is to both uh, speak as a dominated group, um, but also to change the conditions that um, brought that group into place in the first place. So, so like, I mean, the workers—it's an obvious example. Like, uh, the proletariat mobilizes um, so as to destroy the proletariat, so that there would no no longer be a proletariat. So they kind of, they have an identity that's against their identity in some ways, but that requires some kind of uh, um, remedial 
address of, of them as that group. Can I just say, I know you've yeah. got other things to say. I have, <laughs> I have one meta thing to say, which is, can we open the door now? Because it's really hot. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and yeah. I think the sound is gone. Yeah, there's air conditioning. It's right outside that door, too. Um, is, is it? I still hear something. That slight sound might be the, okay. the, the climate control. Is that okay. too loud? Yeah. Well, I would like to open it more if, if we can, because the more air we have, <laughs> the better. I don't know about yeah. you, but I'm uh, starting to feel a bit like I'm going to pass out. Um, which, you know, in some ways, might enhance <laughs> the quality of the conversation uh, if I pass out. But. Yeah, that's so, a lot of cool, yeah, cool air better, there. Yeah. Are, you, are you? Yeah, I'm you good. Approve of that uh, yeah. measure, the opening the door measure. So, um, let me know when, when I can. And, and then the, the the response I wanted to make to what you just said before I let you continue, <laughs> which I will, um, is that it seems to me there are two different uh, aspects. So one is the reality of of politics as a process that we all live with. There yes. are people who are being oppressed. There are laws that have to be passed. We have to make sure that uh, that wrongs are redressed and that we live in a society that has some semblance of fairness to it. Yes. And the more progress we can make towards that, the better. Uh, and there has been past injustice, and we have to ask what we do about it. And people are grouped in terms of identities. Yes. And that's, that is true, that there are... Um, that it would be inappropriate to say, oh, we just can't look in terms of any right. any identities whatsoever because that's just not the way the world is. Right. So we have to be aware of that and we have to respond in some reasonable way to that. Yes. But on the other hand, then there's a more metaphysical awareness of yeah. the fact that, well, it's actually not quite true to look at that. And as we're all ideally working together towards the happy day when we can improve things, we should be aware of the fact that that from an intellectual perspective, those identities aren't nearly as hard and fast and rigid and even intellectually appropriate as we might naively think. Yes, yes. I mean, there's been a lot of interesting work around this problem, especially in the philosophy of race, because, uh, for, like, race uh, has no uh, physical reality. So there is no, uh, you know... No, no gene for race. There's no gene for race, and... and uh, uh, yeah, and so there's no like you know piece of matter or reality that that you can identify as the the cause of race, um, but uh, you know but clearly it's real in a social sense in that it has a very dramatic effect um, on people's life experience and on their uh, their outcomes. Um, but like from a metaphysical Spinoza's perspective, you're like well no it, it's not like one little kernel of reality that causes race, but it's a whole lot of causes um, that are involved in the production of race. Um, it's, uh, you know, like uh, institutional causes, uh, psychic causes, um, you know, a whole complex network of causes that make it such that, um, you know, it's not something you identify with a microscope, but, and you can't exactly uh, you know, knock on it, but uh, but you can s uh, confirm that there are real forces um, that are 
making this the case. And one of the things that I like about um, Spinoza's insistence that a thought is as real as matter is to say that um, you know beliefs um, like ideological commitments, thoughts we have, those are real forces that have real um, impact on the vitality of people. Um, so they aren't inconsequential. Um, and they're not consequential just as things that cause people to act, but they're consequential as uh, like things that actually make up our mind. Um, and, uh, and your mind can be uh, more or less powerful, more or less joyful, more or less uh, receptive and elastic, and et cetera, et cetera. And um, if you have a lot of like forces out there, ideal forces that are, um, you know, diminishing, then that's like that's a, a a real impact on your, you know, in Spinoza's language, on in your power to persevere in being. So we don't have to dismiss. Um, those kind of phenomena as um, something that uh, is just illusory, something that we could just uh, get rid of by recognizing that it's not true, um, and uh, or and as something that uh, like isn't uh, genuinely like harmful. Um, so I think that's and and of course for Spinoza there's also the mind body identity. So anything that harms your psyche is a genuine harm to your to your body. So I, I want to I give, I'm going to threaten you, to, but I'm going to get back to that. <laughs> um, but I'd like to move into a few other directions, if I may, first. So we, we talked about at least quite a few aspects of the political ramifications of this, this way of looking at the world <laughs> and the implications. But of course, there are others. Um, so one thing that you point out, which I think is quite topical, not only amongst uh, contemporary philosophers, but amongst uh, the general populace is this notion of animal rights yes. and this notion of uh, what liberties and what freedoms and what rights, what identities, how, whatever you want to say, we give to animals. Because uh, as you pointed out, in Spinoza's worldview, um, he doesn't put thought just in the domain of man. He doesn't make this arbitrary, hard and fast distinction yes. about that, like he doesn't about anything. There is yes. this broad continuum which exists out there. Yes. Um, and so there is certainly the implication, if not anything explicit, I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable, but that, that animals possess certainly rational aspects okay. to them, uh, based upon the way we look at those words, rational mm -hmm. aspect, which is in stark contrast to Descartes, who came right before him, and yes. and it's of course not clear um, uh, what Descartes' motivation is, and if he really believed that. I've personally, uh, I've always been really puzzled by this because Descartes' belief that that animals are just these automatons. Yeah. I always thought there would be a great deal of service given to the history of philosophy if somebody would have come along at the time and given Descartes a dog or a cat. He had a dog. He had a dog, which so, he loved apparently. Okay, so so. <laughs> I didn't know that. So, yeah. <laughs> so here's, here's my response. He was lying. Yeah. I'm, I'm convinced he was lying because I think it's impossible yeah. as a proud dog owner <laughs> to say that, um, that, that a dog is an, a, is an automaton. I, I mean, there are aspects of instinct and so forth that we all see. But I find it inconceivable that a yeah. thoughtful individual, especially somebody who loved his dog, yeah. could actually believe this. So I suspect that there were 
other <laughs> issues at play yeah. that were <laughs> leading him to that yeah. particular view. But however, that's a long aside, which will in all <laughs> likelihood be edited out. But um, the, the issue is that Spinoza is, of course, very different. His philosophy yeah. is very different. His philosophy uh, explicitly or implicitly gives the uh, opportunity for inclusion of what we would consider thought or rational principles well outside of the domain of humanity yeah. and lowers humanity uh, from this pristine domain within a domain, as yeah. it were. Um, and I think that resonates very strongly with many contemporary values about animals and animal rights and yeah. animal consciousness and so forth. So again, that yeah. seems to be something that is quite germane to our society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe I'll, I'll take this occasion to then try to say what philanthropic posthumanism is. Um, what are the, the first uh, kind of like well-meaning responses any, any feminist uh, gets to, to or, or one of the first kind of well-meaning objections to feminism anyone hears is like, I'm not a feminist, I'm a humanist. Um, and uh, so, you know, I was very early on suspicious of this, of this idea of humanism um, because it's just a way of sort of changing the conversation and not actually taking seriously any, any points that are being made. So one thing I was very excited about in Spinoza is that um, he, you know, the principles of his philosophy, um, instead of starting with uh, the conscious person as Descartes does, like his technique is to um, start with the, the introspecting ego who uh, discovers um, uh, you know, through, you know, pure thought thinking itself, the, um, the origin of the criterion of truth. And, um, and for Spinoza, I think, like, you can't get to truth by starting with human consciousness. You have to get to truth by displacing human consciousness. You have to get to truth by um, thinking about, uh, like, this larger reality in which, uh, you know, human consciousness is... Uh, a tiny, tiny part, um, and that it needs to be thought of in this uh, larger context as always involved in uh, relationships with uh, infinitely other beings, and those are human and non-human beings. And so it just, you know, on the cosmological level, it just it makes humanity seem smaller or humbler, um, as you said, um, but it also makes consciousness seem um, less like this like autonomous creative power and more like this effect mm -hmm. of its environment and of its system of, of relationships and um and it seems to put it on a continuum to yes some extent, right it's absolutely not, it's not this discrete one thing like oh look at these guys they have consciousness and exactly exactly and even like in, in part two of the ethics on uh the human mind he like goes for 13 propositions where he says he's, you know, he's just talking about thought and mind in general and only in the note to proposition 13, he says, uh, well, maybe I should say some things that just, you know, uh, clarify uh, the nature of the human mind as opposed to other minds because so far everything that I've, I've said uh, you can apply to anything whatsoever. Um, and then he says, and all of reality, which is in some measure animate. And so he says... Uh, you know, the only thing that distinguishes a human mind from another mind is um, the relative uh, complexity of the body, um, of which it is an idea. So, um, but then, of course, my, my students always ask, well, cat bodies are pretty awesome. I mean, cats can jump like, you know, uh, 
you know, 10 times their own height. They're uh, incredibly flexible. Their bodies are so impressive. Like, why don't they have... <laughs> tell, tell them to take a course in neuroscience. Yeah. Yes, that's, yeah. that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> there's no. complexity and then there's complexity. Yeah. Yeah, so there's the human brain, which is obviously part of the body and it's not part of the mind, and, mm -hmm. uh, and yes, and the system of nerves, etc. But yeah, and they always ask, well, does that mean I should work out a lot? Like, they ask that? Yeah, they ask all kinds of questions, and, and they're like... They say there's no such thing as a stupid question, but, <laughs> but that sounds like a stupid question to me. <laughs> but that's, that's just... Yeah. Uh, they ask if they should take hallucinogenic drugs also, if this is part of Spinoza's uh, yeah. program. <laughs> Tell them to grind some lenses. Tell them that that's what they yeah. should do. They'll work for an optician. Yeah. Another thing that uh, I'm looking at, at, at this sense, as you've highlighted, all the different implications in mm -hmm. the real world, as yeah. it were, of some of these ideas, some yeah. of these naturalism ideas, be it they political, be they in terms of animal uh, appreciation, if not yeah. going so far as animal rights, and, yeah. and understanding man's proper place. Um, there's also, it seems to me, an environmental and ecological strain to this, yeah. which is obviously something that has a great deal of contemporary relevance. So yes. give me a sense as to what Spinoza's thinking or a Spinozistic worldview um, would imply or could help us with on the environmental side of things. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think like both to address the the question of, of non-human animals and the environment. We have to make a distinction between uh, sort of what Spinoza the man thought and uh, what Spinoza's philosophy allows us to think. Um, so, you know, just as is the, the case with women, um, I think, uh, I mean, I've made this argument that, that Spinoza seems to both affirm uh, women's equality and to vehemently deny it in other places. It seems like he was... Uh, equivocal on, on the question, but he certainly, uh, you know, was no feminist or advocate of women's rights. Uh, in the case of non-human animals, um, he also says, while there is no, um, like, absolute or metaphysical difference between humans and, an, and non-human animals, as Descartes, for example, insists um, unequivocally, uh, it's still the case that, uh, we should not accord them any kind of priority um, over us. We should never sort of withhold um, what it is that we want or need um, on behalf of, of animals. Um, we pursue our uh, right and our power, uh, you know, rightly as, as, as human beings. And that requires a certain kind of, uh, you know, alliance or identification with at least the other human beings in our community. Um, and... Uh, and so people have argued, like uh, Genevieve Lloyd, for example, and, and I think rightly, that uh, you can't extract um, an animal or uh, environmental rights program from Spinoza. Um, and, and I think that that's true. So even though there is this metaphysical continuity at the practical level, Spinoza says, like, look, we are all part of nature, um, and our project is to survive and live as well as we can. And that means, you know, in the practical life, you know, we, we take sides, and our side is us. <laughs> and our side is, uh, and, you know, and one of the problems is, you know, like, human beings take sides against each other. And, uh, and if that's the reality in which you find yourself, to some extent, you know, 
you're going to find yourself taking sides, advocating uh, your own survival and the survival of, of your community. Um, but he's, he has a lot of uh, hope that human beings have enough in common that we should uh, be able to overcome these uh, radical antagonisms and have a more cooperative um, uh, system of organization for, for human institutions and human life. He doesn't seem to have given much thought about like whether we could come up with a more cooperative relationship that would you know, better serve the environment or uh, non-human animals. Of course, that's not so much an issue in his time. No, it wasn't. And of course, there were other very strong political issues uh, in yes. his time that he, he was more naturally more concerned with, one might argue. Although yes, There's yes. a question of what naturally means, but I'll not yeah. bring that up. Yeah, but I think today, for example, I think that the context has changed enough that I think uh, taking our own side means uh, cooperating to, uh, you know, take into account the environment um, and to really like mobilize against, for example, anthropogenic climate change. Like that's what it would mean to take our own side today. Spinoza couldn't see that then, but I don't see it in any, having any tension at all with his principles that um, if we want to, you know, live well, if we want to endure, if we want to set up, uh, you know, stable human institutions, we have to, um, you know, arrange them in such a way that doesn't destroy the conditions of our survival. Um, we need to be to be concerned about the environment. It's it's not. It, it is one that comes out of um, the thought of like what what is it to um, to to take your own side. Um, it's not a, a thought of um, like what is it that we owe um, nature or what is it that we we owe animals. And I've, I've tried to argue that, that uh, Spinoza thought that, for example, uh, affectionate relationships between humans and non-human animals was, he thought this was like infantile, he thought it was womanly, um, <laughs> and, uh, and basically a bad idea. Um, he didn't have a dog. I'm no, guessing. I'm guessing he didn't have a dog. No, and, uh, and cat, in fact, he liked to put spiders in a jar and watch them fight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I read that, but spiders and anyway. Yeah, yeah, he's, but not not very sentimental uh, with with respect to to animals, but um, and so you know, I've tried to say like, well, in fact, there is is quite a bit of evidence that uh, that it does uh, really support our vitality to have uh, relationships with non-human animals, and I suspect that it's you know now I'm going to sound like. Uh, you know the the new age uh, people from 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 once I came, but uh, <laughs> um, but I do think that like there is this uh, kind of very, like very like primal connection we have to non-human animals. That, where I guess I I read that um, children dream frequently, uh, like more frequently about animals than about people, and that and you know lots of children's literature has animal characters, and there's this like very strong. Uh, connection that children have to non-human animals, and I, like I think we have this kind of uh, like not understood uh, like vitality and joy and excitement that we get from being in the presence of non-human animals, and I think from a Spinozist perspective that that kind of community of uh, of contagion can be very uh, 
positive and um, and can you know increase longevity, for example. That doesn't sound so bad. I was expecting something really flaky when you started uh, <laughs> talking about, about your origins. Um, but a distinction that we've um, made implicitly, but I think maybe we should make more explicitly going on, is there are, of course, the ideas that were inspired or that are inspired or that one might naturally argue are, are, are a consequent of Spinoza's thinking and Spinoza's mm -hmm. beliefs and Spinoza's ideas without necessarily arguing that he himself had mm -hmm. those particular beliefs or, or was preoccupied with those mm -hmm. fights or what have you. Mm -hmm. So that's part of something I'd like to move towards right at the very end, I'm not quite there yet, about um, the implications of all this. And, and uh, I'd like to get there in, in a bit. But before I do, I want to plunge into some of the areas that I kept brushing you aside with. <laughs> um, First of all, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into the community of philosophers who work on Spinoza, mm -hmm. um, because as you know, I'm speaking to a fair number of them over the next little yeah. while. Um, and I'd like to get a sense from you as to how you would characterize the community. Um, mm -hmm. I would like more specifically to get a sense as to what other members of the Spinoza community or the philosophical community writ large think of of, of some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's just Sharp doing her thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we tolerate her and she is, yeah. she, we'll give her a talk, uh, but uh, yeah. she's going to do this. Or is the community actually changing in terms of these ideas having a greater and greater effect or impact? Or how do they measure up against Jonathan Israel's arguments about the radical enlightenment and other yeah. people's views on Spinoza? So give me a yeah. snapshot of, of the philosophical community the impact that your ideas are, are having, where you think it is, where it's going, mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the things that I tell my graduate students when they're sort of selecting a dissertation topic is that uh, you're not just choosing a, a topic or a thinker or a problem that you're going to work on for the next, you know, at least 10 years, but maybe 40 um, or 50 years, um, but you're picking a community that that you're going to be part of, or at least you're going to find yourself in a community, and um, and ideally you want that to be a community that's going to be, you know, like embrace your ideas, or at least be tolerant of them, or and uh, and a community in which you can sort of grow and learn and find mentorship. Um, and uh, I think uh, I say that retrospectively, having I just accidentally uh, inserted myself into the Spinoza community. But I feel I'm very, very lucky uh, that, <laughs> that that's where, where I found myself um, because uh, it's uh, very, very diverse in terms of intellectual approach. And um, like, as I'm sure you know, reading around, um, people have wildly, wildly different interpretations of Spinoza and wildly different things that they get out of Spinoza and um, wildly different directions they uh, take, take the ideas in. Um, and I think, uh, and at least wildly different interpretations has been true uh, for a very, very long time. And, uh, you know, and most like canonical philosophers worth their salt, uh, you know, that's the case is that pe people don't agree about the text. Sure. And, uh, and that's uh, one reason why a lot of different people can find something to say. Um, but it's almost also, the definition of being canonical. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you can like read the text over and over for 20 years is because you find different things and you disagree with your former self and et cetera, et cetera. So 
so that's really fun and rich. But uh, I think the, the Spinoza community um, is like, I think uh, maybe in the spirit of Spinoza, uh, quite a tolerant community. Um, so very open to, to different ideas. And I love, uh, you know, Spinoza says this thing about, about the Bible is that um, uh, everyone should be able to, should be allowed to interpret the Bible in whatever way best allows them to love their neighbor as themselves. Um, and I think, you know, well, it's not completely this, uh, you know, anything goes <laughs> um, uh, nest of love in, in Spinoza studies, uh, but I think there is uh, quite a bit of latitude in terms of, of what you do with Spinoza and what you say about Spinoza. So, um, so I think that's good. I've, I, I feel, uh, I feel fairly accepted, even though, uh, as, as you've probably discerned, I do a lot more sort of contemporary application of, of Spinoza, bringing Spinoza into conversation with, uh, feminism, environmental philosophy, and, uh, Marxism than, most people in the philosophical community, like much more. Um, and uh, so I feel lucky that that hasn't uh, made me totally alien and strange in the Spinoza world. Um, but I'd say like there still are some, uh, you know, at least uh, subcultures that interact, you know, don't interact that much with each other. And, in Spinoza studies. So, I mean, there are people who are more interested in um, the questions of secularism, religion, history of ideas, um, and the, that relationship to politics, and then people who are really interested in just the metaphysics, like just reconstructing what, how Spinoza can possibly make X or Y claim and how that can be valid. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then people who have you know, a more kind of interdisciplinary approach, um, like me, and who are in conversation with, um, uh, or, or who are interested in the, the various contemporary uh, appropriations of Spinoza, which in some ways do violence to Spinoza's original argument. Um, does that answer? Yes, that's good. Um, a few more questions. I'm going to get to the the mind body thing. Um, so as I understand it, so I kept deferring this, but uh, this is maybe more for my self-indulgence than for anything else. But as I understand it, um, the, the metaphysical orientation of Spinoza is to say that mind and body are two of the I believe he says infinite number of attributes. I can't actually yes. think of any other than mind or body. I know. It's, so that's, it's a, that's a big a leap problem. between two and infinite. Yes. But, but, <laughs> but whatever. So yes. there are lots of... And, and, and these things are both... They're attributes that, that, are, that are equivalent. There's this sense of parallelism because mm -hmm. one is not predicated upon the other. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so explicitly... Thought is not predicated upon body, and body is not predicated upon thought. Or the, corpor mm -hmm. the corporeal world is not uh, uh, the cause of thought, exactly. and, and vice versa. Exactly. Well, that's not really the way modern science thinks of things now. Um, and so 
if I'm a cognitive scientist, if I'm a neuroscientist, I think, well, with all due respect, Baruch or Benedictus or yeah. however one yeah. wants to call this gentleman, um, our contemporary views have changed. We actually yeah. think that there are these neurons in our head and these complex systems and we don't pretend to have anything worked out to any degree of certainty yeah. that we would like at all. But we are operating under the assumption that that's actually not the case. That the, okay. the physical matter in our minds, sorry, the physical matter in our brains is, is directly causally responsible for, is a causal agent for our thoughts. Yeah. Um, so my question is this, if I could resuscitate Mr. Spinoza and bring him back, given the sort of person he is, would he think in your view I got to change that. That's wrong. I got to do that part all yeah. over again. Or would he argue with these people, do you think? Yeah. Well, I'm not the best person to answer this question, but um, because I don't understand the, the neuroscience, but apparently a very famous neuroscientist has embraced Spinoza. Well, this is Antonio um, Damasio. Yeah. Who is searching for Spinoza. Yes. He wrote a popular book. I don't know, I don't know if he's yeah. the guy to talk about it. Yeah. But anyway, well, yeah. your, it's your call. So. Well, so would it be right that uh, for neuroscientists, um, it's everything is reducible to matter, that there isn't some phenomenon called thought? Yes. I think I, is... I would go so far as to say that that's a fairly standard scientific piece of scientific dogma, axiom. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a neuroscientist. You could right. be a cosmologist. You right. could be particle physicist, you could be a chemist, yeah. not entirely certain what chemists think, but I'm guessing that they think something like right. that. A, a geneticist, a biologist, yes. you, you, you believe that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so this would be um, like a more radical monism than Spinoza's. That like, so on the one hand, like there is no supernaturalism, but there is just like one kind of reality, which is matter or material or extension. Um, and uh, yeah, would would Spinoza accept this, or would he would he revise? Would he have to revise his his theory? Um, yeah, I mean, for sure, this whole question of the multiplicity of attributes is a, a very perplexing issue in Spinoza's metaphysics. Um, like, to from what I can make of it is that um, you know Spinoza begins with uh, the theological presupposition that uh, God is infinite, um, and if God is infinite, um, so this is how I think of it. I don't know if this is the best way, but that means this is God, I guess. <laughs> that means there have to be uh, infinitely many finite things. Um, uh, and there have to also be infinitely many infinite things <laughs> to uh, like qualify uh, God as infinite. Um, and so the infinitely many infinite things, he says, well, there have to logically there just have to be infinitely many. And but we only know of two. We only know of thought and extension, and we only know of those two because those are the ones of which we're made, which makes no sense because seems to me that every mode needs to be made of every attribute. Um, but, uh, and anyway, so I think this is kind of a logical necessity of his, 
system. Like he just gets mm. stuck with this. And he's and he also I think he puts it in the short treatise in in the following way. I think he says something like, um, uh, if um, you know, if something has uh, all of reality, it has to have all attributes, or something like that. Um, so, and that there has to be infinite. So, uh, on the one hand, it seems like this is just this kind of logical bind he got himself stuck into. Um, on the other hand, um, like it. Uh, you know, maybe there is this phenomenological residue in this insistence that thought is one way in which nature is. Like, like there is this uh, reality that we perceive, he says, as constituting an essence of substance or nature or God. And um, because this seems is a power of reality that is n doesn't seem to be reducible to matter, um, it therefore must be, uh, you know, it must be a genuine power of nature, and that must be, uh, you know, why we uh, get to uh, be as thinking beings. Yeah. Well, it's. It, you know, I wasn't looking for the ironclad answer. Yeah. Obviously, it's difficult. <laughs> I, I would only I would only just add that you can be I think a diehard materialist, as I think all scientists pretty well are these days. Um, they may have their own personal religious beliefs or whatever, mm -hmm. but they're effectively diehard materialists, um, and still believe that there is reality to some things that are immaterial. So what do I mean by that? Well, um, you gave this example of, of a movement, right? You know, the labor movement, the stock market. These are things that yeah. exist. We all know that they exist. Yeah. We don't look for a stock market atoms to, right. to, to build a stock market with. We recognize that they have a reality associated to them, but we would, as, as we as materialists, he says, coming clean, um, uh, we would look at it as derivative insofar as if you would get rid of all the humans, you would naturally get rid of the stock markets. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue that you should get rid of the stock markets first, but that's a, that's, that's, that's a, <laughs> that, that's a whole yeah. different way of looking at things. Yeah. Um, second question, which has really bothered me. So they're getting, um, you're now getting to things that have bothered me for a long time. It's not at all fair for me to ask you this, but I'm sitting next to you, so I'm going to do it anyway. This, this, the thing which has always driven me crazy about Spinoza is the determinism. So here's, here's what drives me crazy. Yeah. So I so I understand. My understanding is that Spinoza is this super diehard determinist who believes that everything is de deterministic in this naturalistic world, yeah. uh, by, and, you know, which is equivalent to God. Blah yeah. blah 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 blah. And there's some big complicated uh, algorithm, for lack of a better word, of these laws interacting in ways that we can barely fathom in all right. likelihood. And but it's unfolding. And so mm -hmm. that he, so he denies miracles. Miracles are just just um, you know, they're just, they're oxymoronic because they yeah. are, by definition, things that go against the laws of nature, but nothing can possibly go against the laws of nature, yeah. and so and blah, 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 blah. So according to Spinoza, and Spinoza's system, as I understand it, there is this determinism. There is this determinism, there's this law-like determinism, which includes all of us, which includes yeah. thought and so forth. So if I really believe that, yeah. if I really believe that at some level, 
why is Spinoza writing books? Why is he trying to educate people? Yeah. Why is he taught? What, what reason is there for optimism or for yeah. change or for going forwards? I've always been like slamming up against this issue. Yes. And, and am I the only one? Am I crazy? No, here, no, you're not alone. Okay. Um, I think this was like the first question at every single one of my job interviews because, <laughs> <laughs> because I was writing about uh, Spinoza a little bit before this sort of wave of Spinozism. Um, uh, had sort of like infected philosophy and, and even the, the larger public. But, uh, and they saw I was writing about Spinoza and politics, and, that's, and their idea of Spinoza is primarily Spinoza's metaphysics and his denial of free will and his insistence on determinism. And they're like, just how do you even start to, you know, uh, you know what, like how does your project make even the you know, modicum of sense? Um, so, uh, so I think uh, so. There, there's there's uh, two things that that help us with it, with this problem. Um, so the first is that at the psychological level um, or epistemic level, Spinoza says, um, uh, and as you already uh, pointed out in your comments, but that we can't possibly know how all the things are connected. We can't predict. Uh, the outcome of uh, certain interactions of finite modes. So everything is causally uh, determined. There is a cause that precedes every event, or, or you know, many, many causes that precede or contribute to any particular event. Um, and we can't possibly know all of that. And so he says, we have to act as though everything is contingent. Um, so like at the level of, of like getting on with your life, at the level of practice, practical philosophy and at the level of politics, um, we have to act as though um, it's not determined. We have to act as though we have um, a power to, for example, act other than, other, otherwise than we have been determined. Um, so, um, so this is a standard compatibilist view? Is that, or is it I think different? it's not standard in the following way. So, um, so on the one hand, um, you know, when uh, you know, I go to like pick up my kids from daycare. Mm -hmm. um, I just have to, you know, act as though I'm like, uh, you know, willingness. I have this end and that I'm aiming to, right. to carry out. Because um, if you don't pick them up, then they're going to be a daycare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, on the compatibilist model, it is the case that you are that free agent. We just can't really explain it. Um, like oh, without the compatibilism. Yeah, yeah. I think like I mean, or at I least understood the <laughs> Like on on Kant's explanation in like the third antinomy to the first critique, he says um, there's just a special cause that uh, you know that accounts for uh, human freedom, and we need to attribute that special cause in order for morality to be possible. So it's like this pragmatic need to say, say that it's there, um, but, uh, but it's still the case that um, in, we could actually, you know, through the laws of causality, predict all of the behavior of X person, but in order to hold him materially, uh, morally responsible, we need to say that there is um, a kind of spontaneity or there is some kind of uh, human freedom that is the source of that action. Otherwise, there's no morality. So it's, <laughs> that's why it's an antinomy. He says we can hold um, uh, 
both of, we can hold both of these propositions to be true, that I am free and that I am causally determined, even though they're irreconcilable, they're, we avow them as being both true. Um, I distracted you because I took yeah, you. Yeah. Away. I took, I'm sorry, I took you away from yeah. from the. Yeah. You were just finished the first yeah. response so, to so, the job interviewer. Yeah. <laughs> so I think he's he's not a compatibilist in the sense that we act as though uh, um, we have this uh, freedom and uh, as though things are contingent, but we know at the level of intellect that it's not true. So for the compatibilist. It is true. It's just not explicable. Um, but for the Spinozist, uh, it's it's not true. We know that there are causes operating. We just don't know what they are. Um, and and I've tried to argue that uh, there's uh, you know it seems like a weird kind of double consciousness <laughs> uh, relationship to your own actions. It's like I'm I'm gonna sort of like uh, throw myself into this action. Um, and uh, try to bring about something, even though you know, I know that it's not contingent upon my will, but it's contingent upon the cooperation of infinitely many other forces in nature over which I have no control, um, or limited, limited to no control. Um, and all parents know we have limited control over no, these other no. powers. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but for I think that there's, uh, for Spinoza, there's a strong therapeutic value to, at least, like retrospectively, you look upon a kind of failed action or a disastrous action or some kind of terrible deed you've committed um, or some kind of terrible feeling that you've undergone. And um, you say, you know, I contributed to this at some level with, uh, you know, my desires and my passions and powers that are mine. But if we were to do some kind of inventory of all of the causes and forces that uh, <laughs> that made this uh, uh, happen, I would be a tiny bit. I you know I would bear responsibility in some sense for a tiny bit of that. And so there's something that uh, is liberating about that. And I think. And Spinoza thinks, especially in the case of some kind of traumatic event, some kind of murder, um, you know, something like that, uh, you know, we may still need to, uh, like, neutralize the person who did some kind of horrible evil thing, but the evil can't be, uh, you know, it's only just the tip of the iceberg of an explanation to say that this person had a malicious desire. Mm. Um, the exhaustive explanation is going to be uh, way, way bigger, and that will give us um, a lot more clue into what it is that needs to change. My last question, or in fact, my second last question, relates to, I guess, the whole ball of wax. So let me just step back and let me be somebody from 30,000 feet saying, okay, here's this woman. She does interesting work trying to marry the work of an influential 17th century philosopher in terms of things that affect me today, be it politics and understanding politics and political movements, freedom from oppression, Marxism, feminism, what have you, right? environmentalism, animal mm -hmm. rights, whatever. Um, what is, you mentioned before in terms of the job interview, your project. 
So yeah. what is your project? What are, the, what are the goals, as it were, of this? I understand yeah. that you are a scholar and that you yeah. are looking at this, and you are not so much an intellectual historian looking at the effect of one of Spinoza's ideas over mm -hmm. time, nor are you necessarily strictly a biographical scholar looking at Spinoza qua Spinoza, mm -hmm. or a metaphysician looking at the ramification of this axiom and that axiom and how they can mm -hmm. be reconciled. While you do those things, mm -hmm. that's not primarily your research project. So in terms of what you want to accomplish yeah. and what is its relevance, to use a terrible word, I'm not saying you have to go out and you know yeah. uh, impact people's lives and all this grant mm -hmm. writing stuff, um, but yeah. what, is its, what is the direct relevance of your research project to the wider world, if at all, in terms mm -hmm. of our understanding. Should people go out? Is, is it, is it uh, at least a corollary of some of your work that everybody should go out and buy the ethics and, and, <laughs> and read it to their children at night? Should, is it a way of deepening our understanding? What sort of real impact and real effects do you imagine your project to have if you were to be successful? Oh, that is such a hard question. <laughs> yeah, that's why it was my last one, my second last one. My last one is, do you have any other questions? Yeah. So that's really my last question. Um, yeah. Uh, and I always, I find this to be, yeah, a very challenging question. But, uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think uh, I just, uh, I fell in love with Spinoza, and I fell in love with Spinoza because... Um, I did feel like it gave me these sort of enabling, empowering resources for thinking about um, these problems of the wider social world and also my, my uh, you know, thinking about myself and my personal life, um, that I found the text just really uh, invigorating and enabling. It, made, it, it gave me new perspective on just everyday problems and questions, and I have always had this... Uh, fantasy um, of, you know, writing a sort of popular self-help book, like what would Spinoza do? <laughs> because, uh, because I have found uh, Spinoza so helpful for thinking. thinking I, think, I think you should write it. Really? <laughs> I really think you should write it. And I said now, because he seems to be pretty trendy. So yeah. I think you should write it now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but like I, I did... I mean, I, I think I, I did get really hooked because, uh, um, uh, you know, Spinoza makes this, this distinction. I'm always getting into content. But, but um, between, uh, you know, the, he categorizes all, like, joyful passions as ones that make you stronger and more capable and more powerful and uh, sad passions as ones that are diminishing and, and make you weaker. And, uh, and I do think we and especially philosophers have this weird uh, like attachment to, to sad passions and that we feel like we're deeper thinkers and more interesting the extent to which we dwell on sadness and um, and the very worst things um, that human beings do to think about human evil and um, but and uh, and I noticed get me rambling a little bit but and I noticed in this recent Pixar movie um, where uh, they represent the, all of the interior inside out. Um, so I haven't seen the movie yet. I've just read about it. But they have like different characters representing different emotions. And there's only one happy emotion. There's five emotions. There's only one happy emotion. Because it's but, not interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's like what's interesting about human beings is 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 uh, these these sad passions and um, and so. 
like it seems really silly, but um, but I took from Spinoza that that uh, um, our joyful passions are like telling us something. They're telling us uh, like what is uh, vitalizing us, what 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 is helping us um, to live, and what what are sources of, of, of strength in our life, and that it's uh, like not good to get attached to these sort of sad passions that 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 might make you feel like you're thinking about something important because it's <laughs> because it's sad and distressing and uh, and it's not as simple as just uh, like see- seeking out joy because of course there can be these ephemeral destructive joys um, like uh, you know when you like you know drink way too much and, <laughs> and you're not talking and, about you're not advocating hedonism no 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 but 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 paying attention to um, for example like uh, you know those friends that uh, you know make you feel exhilarated in conversation and make you come up with new ideas that you didn't know that you had and that uh, you know provoke happy thoughts and that just make you feel like strong and capable and intelligent and that don't make you feel uh, like dumb and weak and like you, you oh I have to fix that about myself um, and I think you know especially people who are attracted to academia will often like pursue relationships with professors or with peers um, because they you know they feel like oh I don't have that I'm not smart like that person I need to be around that person mm. um, and you know there are more and less enabling ways to have that thought you can be like oh this is a tremendously exciting power this person has I want to be in touch with it um, and but there's also a tendency to be, be like oh my god I'm just I'm, to be intimidated yeah be super intimidated and to seek uh, the approval of that person that like in order to be able to be valid as a thinker is to win the approval of the person who's least likely to dispense their approval and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so I found Spinoza um, a sort of a good guide through the neuroses of uh, academic life in terms of uh, pursuing those kinds of relationships and those kinds of mentors um, that, that made me feel intelligent and strong and capable and that excited me and um, like made me want to speak instead of making me want to be silent but of course I want people who are going to make me speak thoughtfully and not <laughs> etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but I found it like very very uh, liberating in that way um, so I try to I think convey especially in my teaching but um, but I hope to like some extent in my writing just uh, like an affection for the thinker and um, uh, insight, sort of like like pleasure in ideas, and but but also um, like point to I think the real like therapeutic in terms of like inf- individual life and collective life, the therapeutic effects that uh, Spinoza's work can have. Right, I think you should write that book <laughs> and. Presumably, through through your writings and through your teaching, a general sense of we would be better off as a society if we were more exposed to these types of ideas. And yes. who knows in the Spinozistic tradition where that might lead, but it probably would be a good thing um, if 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 we could um, have a deeper understanding of these things. And as you've pointed out many times, it could. 
it would in all likelihood certainly lead to, at the very least, a greater sense of tolerance and probably a great deal more than that, I would, I would imagine. Yes. Any more, anything I left out? Anything yeah. I missed? Anything you want to go back to? I mean, this might be a good way to, to return to the humanism question because I do think um, the most easily available response, I think, to basically like all of the horrible problems there are in the world and all of the struggles that humans have had uh, with each other throughout history um, is humanism. People think like what we need is uh, unity, equality, mutuality of respect, etc. This is the answer. And, um, and I'm really convinced through, uh, you know, through Spinoza, but also especially through feminism, that this isn't the answer. This isn't the good answer because uh, um, every, you know, there uh, have been some, um, you know, good uh, legal, um, I'm losing my words now, but... Uh, just um, starting in. No, no, seriously, just starting yeah. in. It doesn't matter. Um, so... You're saying there have been some good... Yeah, humanism has the, you know, the, the ideology of humanism, of human equality, of, of, of equality of respect, um, has, uh, you know, uh, inspired uh, good laws and... Uh, Such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and yes, this kind of thing? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and, you know, have contributed to, to social progress. Um, but in general, there is no um, uh, doctrine of humanism that doesn't also um, draw very clear lines around who counts as human and who doesn't. So, I mean, early instantiations of humanism were quite clear that humans are propertied males, um, they are not uh, non-Europeans. They are not women, um, etc. So you know, not even males without property. <laughs> yes, exactly. They are not. They are not <laughs> servants. Uh, they are not workers, etc. So and um, and even you know, as uh, uh, universalism expands um, and the insistence on, on universal human rights expands, um, there are still. Uh, you know, subtle kinds of exclusions. There's still sort of norms and ideals of, of what humans are and what humans should be, and those um, are always uh, exclusionary and they're always oppressive um, for some people. And, uh, and they always end up valuing certain characteristics of, of human beings, and it's off, like reason or moral sensibility, um, the ability to make promises, for example, and of course the cognitively disabled are, are excluded. Um, you know that doesn't wouldn't include uh, you know elderly or senile people, and we could see maybe this subtly uh, contributes to the way in which you know we're not very good at taking care of our old. Um, for example, we don't consider them like productive, important members of society because they no longer exhibit these these characteristics that we attribute like uh, um, identify with humanity. And, um, you know, I think a lot of uh, problems follow from that. And I think especially now that we're uh, encountering uh, serious uh, threats to the environment, um, this strong distinction, this strong kind of priority of humanity over all other beings 
um, is going to lead to all kinds of practical problems. So I think Spinoza provides resources for um, thinking about alliances that are not based on some kind of unique essential human characteristic um, and systems of cooperation that are not grounded on um, regarding one another as um, like special in kind, as, uh, as, as non-natural beings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's valuable for that reason. Um, and why I uh, call on him as a resource for philanthropic post-humanism is to say, okay, it's post-humanism in the sense that it's not a reinforcement and revitalism, revitalization of uh, early humanism's calls for equality and uh, mutuality on the basis of equal dignity or equal rationality. Um, so it's, it's, it's post-humanism in that sense. Um, but uh, Spinoza still insists that uh, we have a reason to be uh, allied with one another and that human, like the community with others who are like us, um, and that's a very metaphysically complicated thing for Spinoza, but uh, is like we are, will thrive and be most capable insofar as we have, um, and be happiest insofar as we have good systems of cooperation among us. So our relationship with each other is really, really, really important, but we need a different basis. We don't, we need a basis that is not essentially supernaturalist, that is not grounded in this, this special distinction between uh, humans and the rest of nature. And we need, and from the feminist point of view, we need uh, a foundation that is not implicitly privileging, uh, you know, some kind of uh, like male norm of being emotionless and super rational, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we need some other basis, uh, but we need philanthropy. We need uh, like not a rejection of uh, human beings. Um, or something like that, and not a rejection of, of, of humanity as, for example, as having sort of like betrayed its ideals or something like that. Um, but we need a, a form of uh, philia, of friendship, of connection, of cooperation um, that has a different kind of basis, that has a naturalistic basis, that has a less exclusionary and a more malleable um, basis than the one that is in the tradition of humanism. So that sounds like a project that most people could get on board with. It sounds like quite a rallying cry and, and overwhelmingly relevant, I would say. Hazana, it's been great. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Philosophy, Volume 2 along with separate discussions with Brian Epstein, Susan James, Honora O'Neill, and Susan Wolf. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. 